I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. delighted today that we get to welcome John Hambrick and Tisha Hedra to be with us on Conversing. They have just co-authored a really quite wonderful book that is entitled Black and White, Disrupting Racism, One Friendship at a Time. This is a pretty remarkable book, I think, because it creates a threshold for almost anybody that cares at all about issues of race to find themselves somewhere in this book. And I think the invitation that you've given is really a terrific one. So John is currently directing Starting Point, which is a small group effort to reach out to people in Atlanta who are not involved in the church, may not be Christian believers, but who are interested in exploring questions of faith. That's right. And he also is the leader of staff development at Buckhead Church, which is a an enormous church in Atlanta and a church that has a national influence. And John and I, it happens, we're also students at Fuller at about the same time. So hmm. it's really wonderful to get to be with him again. Tisha has lived a lot of her life first in South Florida. She goes to college, eventually becomes an attorney, finds herself in Atlanta working as an attorney and part of the Buckhead Church. And because both John and Tisha were on the staff together at Buckhead, that's the context of their friendship, and they'll say a bit more about that in a moment. She currently is in the process of completing a Master of Divinity degree here at Fuller Seminary, and she is also serving as the executive pastor of Church of the Resurrection. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us yeah, here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to have you. I admire you both, and I know you in such different ways. John, I do remember years ago thinking that you were one of the funniest people I knew during the time that I was at Fuller. And Tisha, wouldn't you say that he's still one of the funniest people that you know? <laughs> This okay. is a setup. This That's is already right. a setup. Wow. I wasn't aware. <laughs> I was hoping it wouldn't get awkward for a little while, a little further into the interview. We decided but. to just jump in. Oh, listen, I, I'm here for it. I think it's great. I think John is like semi-funny. Semi-funny. <laughs> That's wow. perfect. That's just What, what do you point. mean by semi? Like somewhat, mostly, somewhat. but not okay. always. <laughs> That's good to know going forward. <laughs> and Tisha, you I've come to know because of your being a student here at Fuller. And yes. it's been wonderful to see your involvement in many, many things at Fuller. And a great opportunity to get acquainted over these years. So tell us about this book because it's just been launched and it's a very important read, I think. It lands in a space that I think is, is needed for many, many people who feel like they either know a lot or they know nothing really about issues of race. And I think it's really almost an ideal book to give to people to say, this is a starting point to really begin to think uh, on the personal level, but eventually also on the more systemic level, we'll come to both of those dimensions. But tell us how the book actually unfolded. Yeah. Well, so I have written a book before, and as I was thinking about what I ought to write next, I arrived at the conclusion that I wanted to write something about race. So I approached my then publisher with that idea, and they said, this would be much more interesting 
old white guy if you would co-write this with a black person. Did they use those exact words? No, no but I was in. I was reading between the lines. <laughs> <laughs> so um, sensitive souls. That's you are. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'm Irish. We take everything personally. <laughs> so I very quickly thought of Tisha, and we had been friends for a long time. So as we usually say, we didn't strike up a friendship in order to write a book. We'd been friends for years before the idea of writing a book Mm -hmm. even came up. So I asked Tisha, hey, what do you think? And she took some time to think and pray and said, yes. Great. And so we were off to the races at that point. So Tisha, it feels to me like the decks would have been stacked to be harder for you than for John. So how did this decision to write this book actually unfold for you? Yeah, I mean, there were so many different things that I was kind of weighing as I was thinking and talking to people and praying about writing this book. I mean, there were the practical matters of, I am a student and a graduate student at that and, you know, a wife and I work also. So there's all these different demands on my time. And so I was definitely worried about just the practicalities of writing a book and being a graduate student and, a, you know, working and all at the same time and all those things. And then there were just the you know, some trepidation really about wading into this topic. And, you know, would we strike the right, air quotes, balance? Would we write the book that we wanted to write? Would we be able to do the things that we wanted to do? I I didn't want to write a book that implied that if Black people and white people would just kind of sit around a table together and drink coffee and sing Kumbaya, then that would definitely fix everything. Right. You have a joke to tell, John, I can tell. Well, just every time you tell the story, you take a shot at Kumbaya. I what if the guy who wrote Kumbaya is listening? <laughs> who is who wrote well, Kumbaya? Well, I don't know, but what if I he's... I don't either. Well, maybe you should think about that before you... Right. Right. out there if you are the person who wrote Kumbaya. <laughs> we are so sorry. <laughs> Mark We're grateful I, for what it was. Mark and I love mm-hmm. the song, but... Well, there are a lot of comments I could make about that, but I, I'll leave that one alone. But we didn't want to write that book. I right. didn't want to write that book, especially as a Black woman who is passionate about issues of race and racial justice. But, you know, we John and I had some really great conversations, and we knew that neither of us wanted to write that book. And I do not think we wrote that book. So I'm very not. pleased and very excited for people to read it. So tell us a little bit about the process of your friendship, because the book really is born in a certain way out of your Mm -hmm. friendship as kind of the lens through which the book is written. How did that unfold? You were both on staff at Buckhead. Right. So Tisha came to work with Starting Point, which is one of the things I directed at Buckhead Church. And, you know, it was one of those things during the interview process, it took about 10 seconds to realize she would be a fantastic addition to the staff. And thankfully, she agreed. And so we started working together. And all of a sudden, we just realized there's a substantial amount of respect and trust building, you know, which doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. And we began to feel safe enough with each other to start to talk about issues of race, Mm -hmm. which had at that point already been on my mind. Mm -hmm. And we were very pleased to discover that the trust and respect that had characterized all of our other conversations held strongly when we started to talk about issues of race. Mm -hmm. And we just, yeah, and and that became formative for me. Mm -hmm. Because as we might say later in this interview, it's a bit scary for a white person to talk to a black person about racism, I would say anywhere in the country, but particularly in the South. Mm And it was just such a, a wonderful thing to realize my friend Tisha was not going to try to nail me. She was not going to try to shame me. It was a safe place to mm-hmm. have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, it also seems important to say that John and I are actual friends. You know, like 
we don't only talk about race. We talk about all kinds of things. We right. talk not so much about baseball, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting there. We're get, I don't know we about that, but, but we talk about all, all the things that we have in common. We talk about faith and family right. and common interests and movies and music and culture and current events. And, and I mean, what are, what are you? Well, I was going to say is, just another point to substantiate that is Tisha met her husband in my oh, office. Yeah. He proposed to her in my office. At that same moment? Uh, No, it took a little longer. He would have have preferred it that way, (laughs) though. Come on. And then I did their wedding out here just outside of San Luis Obispo. Nice. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so the point is it's a friendship. It's Mm -hmm. it's It's not... merely an ideological conversation is mm-hmm. and we obviously even though she thinks i'm only semi-funny we do laugh together <laughs> despite that um, we talk about all sorts of things and what we like to tell people who we hope are contemplating this idea of striking up a friendship with somebody who doesn't look like you we like to say you know if you're not enjoying the process you're doing it wrong mm-hmm. 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 yeah john and i have fun together and that yeah. counts for a lot of course yeah and gives you a completely different feeling of each other than if you were just ideologues having a right. yeah. had conversation. Yes. Right. I do know that one of the things that came out a couple of years ago, and I think it was a Pew study, is the very low percentage of white people in America who have close friendships with people who are not also white. Mm. Very small percentage. And I think that when I heard about your book and thought about friendship as an angle into this very complicated topic, it seemed to me exactly right, but also in its own way, threatening. So I'm just curious, when you were, began to turn from just being colleagues in a workplace, having a growing friendship, somewhere along the line, you must have had those turning point conversations where it's like, am I gonna actually ask this, make that observation, raise this issue? Do either of you remember any of those turning points when you were really facing the question, am I gonna take this further? Or am I just mm-hmm. gonna let it be kind of cordiality in the in the office and maybe even good friends, but just not touch such delicate space. Yeah. I think there was one summer in particular, and we, we write about this summer in the book, the summer of 2016, where a lot of people probably remember that summer where there were like three days in a row where there just were these incredibly tragic events. We had the police shooting of Philando Castile, followed by Alton Sterling, followed by the shooting in Dallas of several police officers. And this was, I mean, it just seemed in the moment like things were coming apart at the seams, you know, in our country in terms of race relations. And it was such a painful and really traumatic time because remember that the two police shootings were caught on video. And so you had to listen and see these really graphic and violent events Mm -hmm. that do something to you. Right. So, I mean, I had a choice in that moment, right? I could... I could keep what I was feeling and experiencing to myself. I could keep the pain that I was experiencing to myself, or I could share it with my friend, John, you know, and there's some risk involved in that Mm -hmm. because you don't know exactly how your friend is going to respond. You know how you hope Mm -hmm. they will respond, but you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I was incredibly grateful that as I brought the difficulty of that situation to John, who is my good friend, that he listened intently, mm-hmm. that he did not seek in that moment to pass judgment or to like parse out <laughs> mm-hmm. the details of those situations. 
but he attended to the pain that his friend was experiencing Mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And because of his response, then we were able to deepen our friendship, Mm -hmm. I think. And so that was Mm -hmm. a key moment, I think, in our friendship. Because had that not happened, it probably would have been a moment of pulling back to some degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at that point, you have a sense that this is not actually a safe environment. Right. This is actually not a relationship where it's safe for me to bring all of my pain, all of my anger, actually, mm-hmm. all of my experience to the table and sort of lay it bare for mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. other person. But thankfully, that wasn't what I encountered in my conversation with John. And I remember fairly early on in this process, realizing I wasn't sure, you know, so I'm from Southern California and issues of race play out very differently here than they do in the South. And I realized one day I wasn't sure exactly how I should refer to people of color. Are they African-Americans? Are they black? Are people of color? I didn't know. So I'm going to ask Tisha, but it, it was a bit of a fearful prospect for fear I would get it wrong or mm-hmm. that I would insult her or something. And so one day I said, and it, all, it, it just feels delicate. So at one point I said, so Tisha, how should I refer to you? And I said, African-American and Tisha in that inimitable sort of way that she says, well, if you're going to use African-American, you're going to count me out because my family's from Jamaica. And I said, got it. Yeah, there's some nuance and, co- yeah. you know, there's some layers right? in so, that. Yeah, so totally. she said probably the most inclusive term you could use is black. I said, okay, is every black person good with that? And she said, well, John, you're going to have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> and she kindly but clearly said, you know, I'm not that person. Mm-hmm. You'll need to ask the people with whom right. you're speaking. Right. Mm-hmm. What a thought. You'd actually have to know a person to know a person. What right. a, I know right. what a concept. Category yeah. Wow. Yeah. Person. Yeah. yeah. When your friendship hit bumpy places or where where you did find that you were offending each other or where you were at least stepping mm-hmm. into territory that felt more vulnerable. What was that like? I think the great thing about that is we we never let things simmer. Yeah. And we never took that pain and shoved it down and hid it away because we were afraid or just not mm-hmm. inclined to talk about it. So whenever either of us have crossed any sort of line, we've been fairly quick to say hey, you know that thing you just said or that tone mm-hmm. or whatever it was, you know, that crossed the line and then we talked about it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's basically practicing the relational principles that govern any friendship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by God's grace, we were able to make that a practice in our friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think if you constantly are avoiding those hard conversations, those kind of pain points or those tension points, What ends up happening, I think, is that your relationship then becomes stagnant. You know, those places really are the opportunities for growth. Those places really are the places where, in our experience, God can really break in and begin to transform the both of you, begin to show you a new way of being, a new way of seeing one another, a new way of seeing yourself. And so as difficult as it might be, and it's worth it. It's worth it to move forward when your instinct is to retreat, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. But you have to attend to that mm-hmm. and be intentional about moving forward so much, instead. So much counterintuitive. It is. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting settings that I've been finding very fruitful recently has been that because I travel a lot and I'm in a lot of urban settings around the U.S., especially the high percentage of Uber drivers are people of color. So mm-hmm. I get in, I say, how long have you been driving Uber? 
this is your main gig. Do you always uh, start a conversation with your Uber driver? Sometimes you just want to be quiet, right? Yeah, but seldom. I actually find it so valuable now wow. that I get into the car looking forward to the conversation. You're so, all re- you're a better person. So than I, I <laughs> no, there's times when I <laughs> I turn it off or put on the phone or whatever. But what happens is that then the next question I say, especially if they're a person mm-hmm. of color, and if I can recognize what I think their ethnicity might be, tell me about where you're from. Tell me mm-hmm. about your ethnicity. Sometimes they're hesitant, a little shy, like, mm-hmm. where's this going? But I think pretty quickly, I've found that people are pretty much at ease. So then I say, so what is it like to be a person of that ethnicity in this city? How long have you lived mm-hmm. here? What's your neighborhood like? Do you feel like you're free to be who you want to be and do what you want to do in the city. Well, this just has cracked open like universes mm-hmm. of conversation that have gone in so many interesting ways that I would never have predicted. And especially, particularly with international people of color, but also with Latinos, Latinx people and with black or African-Americans. And and what I find that's so interesting is how immediately they're able to talk about it. I mean, it's instead of it being an abstraction mm-hmm. or an idea, mm-hmm. it's like, well, you're just really asking me to tell my story. To a white person, talking about color is an idea. Mm-hmm. But to a person of color, it's not an right. idea. It's right. You're just asking me to talk about my life. That's right. So then out comes all of these stories. So that happened three times this last week. I was in D.C. and I had conversations that I actually continued after we were at the spot where they had come mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. me. And I stayed in the car and talked to them for like another 10 or 15 minutes about their racial experience mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., Two were from Washington, D.C., longstanding African-American families, and one was an international guy. And what amazed me was really the diversity of their experiences. So, again, you know, the blindness of Mm -hmm. whiteness can also make color generic. These were not generic people, Mm -hmm. of course. They were not generic racial experiences. They had lived in really different neighborhoods. They had really different social experiences. And it was exactly what you were just talking about, namely the particularity of each person's story that was the place where they were the most free and natural, and it seemed to me, eager to talk about it. And because you're in an Uber car, where I at least usually sit in the back, mm-hmm. you're not really having a face-to-face conversation. Right. It's a little safe. If they don't want to have any eye contact, don't look in the rear, rear mm-hmm. mirror. But if they want to have eye contact, they can look in the rear mirror and know that you may be able to connect in that way. It's just a very interesting way of having these conversations, which means that I have them several times a week with people in Uber cars. I guess what I'm getting at is what you guys are trying to encourage is how do you do this in normal space where you really have a person that you may have as a colleague or a neighbor or a friend or a, a student or something that's in your class. And sometimes getting started is the hardest part, especially if there is, for the white people particularly, such a low percentage of cross-racial friendships that they actually have. Well, what I want to name first is put a name to the posture that you've just described, right? Because that before you start talking about kind of the hows, it's important to kind of name how should I be, Mm -hmm. right? And so what you, I think, have described is a posture of humble curiosity, Mm -hmm. a sense of that this person has something to teach me Mm -hmm. and I'm here to learn and I'm going to ask questions and I'm curious. I want to know more about them and about where they've come from and where they've been and how they've gotten to this point. And so that is a posture that not everyone, it takes some effort, I think, to take on. It's a learned behavior. Yes, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Because especially in 
these conversations that can be, let's be honest, fraught in some circumstances. Instead, there's a posture of defensiveness or deflection or combativeness, even a desire to like convince another person of your position and to be argumentative. But then there's this other way of being, which is just a humble curiosity, a desire to know more and an assumption that this person can teach you something. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important to, mm -hmm. to name at the outset. Mm -hmm. There's a chapter in the book where we take kind of a tactical bent mm -hmm. about this idea of friendship. Right. And point out that every friendship starts with a conversation. But then we also point out that not every conversation results in a friendship. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to make sure people don't start to stress out about this. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh, I've got to right. do something. So you're at a cocktail party and you come up to somebody, you know, with a tone being, will you be my friend? Well, that's, right. that's not going to work. Especially like, will you be my black <laughs> friend? Right, yeah. Please don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. Oh my God. <laughs> so if you're out there listening, wondering how does this work? That's one way, that's to way not, not to do it. That's right. right. You know, friendship is not something you take, it's a gift that you receive. Mm -hmm. And so we counsel people, and that's been our experience, and it's everybody's experience who has friends, you know? It's not stressful and intentional in the sense of, I gotta make this happen. It, it flows, you know, you've gotta just let it happen. And sometimes these conversations move towards friendship and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to encourage people to give this a shot. So when you're at a, next time at a coffee break at a conference or a party on a, you know, what you can be intentional about is rather than just talking to somebody of your own race, mm -hmm. just go up to somebody who doesn't look like you mm -hmm. and say, hey, how's it going? Mm -hmm. you know, or what do you, what do you think about right. this? Or I, you know, I, do you like that? Order, mm -hmm. whatever silly question you want to ask. Right, right. But th and that's where the intentionality is, kind of exiting your comfort mm -hmm. zone. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you just got to be yourself, let them be their self and see what happens. It's always live theater. So yes. it's <laughs> unfolding in real time like in yeah. relationship to whatever the dynamic actually mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And there does have to be a certain amount of comfortability about that sort of improvisation. And I think that's part of where the anxiety comes in, right? Because to be successfully improvisational, you have to receive what the other person's giving. Mm -hmm. Then you have to give something back for them, whether that's going to actually be reciprocal and whether right. that can be maintained, you never know. And it's risky. Right. I mean, it's always inherently risky sure. and you've got to have a strong enough sense of yourself that if you try to strike up a conversation with somebody and they just don't want to talk mm -hmm. to you, that you don't go home and sob. Mm -hmm. yeah. You go, okay, you know, not mm -hmm. everybody's going to like you and that's fine. But it also is really fun. You know, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale in South Florida, which is a really diverse and multicultural and international part of the country for anyone who's ever been there, even if it's just kind of on the way to get on their cruise ship. I mean, they know this to be true. You get off the plane in the airport and it's multiple languages right. being spoken right away. And so being around different kinds of people, people of different races, ethnicities, et cetera, is just kind of a part of how I grew up. It's very normal and natural for me. And man, I just wouldn't have it any other way. That mm -hmm. has been such an enriching part of my life. And I wish for everyone to have mm -hmm. that kind of richness, mm -hmm. that kind of thickness in their experience. Homogeneity is no fun. Skip mm -hmm. out on that. There's this wonderful <laughs> new ad that maybe you've seen that's a pianist seated between two grand pianos. And mm. the first piano is tuned in the way that a piano should be tuned. And the second piano is tuned with all of the notes, every key being the same note. Mm. So he plays on both keyboards reciprocally the same thing. Wow. 
And over here, you're hearing this incredible concerto. And over here, mm -hmm. it's just the sound of this one note yeah. being played over and over and over yeah. again across the whole keyboard. But it has no character, no mm -hmm. interest. Nothing mm -hmm. about it makes it interesting, right? Whereas this is specifically because of all the diversity that is a million times more interesting, right. emotionally satisfying, relational, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's engaging. It's creative. I love that. That's a beautiful picture. But the piano with one note is safer. Yeah. You don't have, Much safer. You don't That's have right. to worry about, am I going to be able to hit the right note? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there is no such thing as a wrong note. I could play the concerto yes, exactly. on that, on the <laughs> piano with one note. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and see, that was, as we talk about in the book, I grew up in a part of San Fernando Valley, which at the time, early 60s, was all white. Mm -hmm. My family was white. Mm -hmm. My church was white. Your Almost, whole family? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I know that when I say that sounds kind of. It does sound funny. Well, we weren't clear on that, so I, thanks for point, <laughs> pointing that out. My family's black. Wow. My, my church was all white, and so it was one note, mm -hmm. and it was comfortable. And as I said, it wasn't that those three institutions taught me to think poorly about black people. They just taught me to not think about black people at all. Mm -hmm. And so my problem personally was not so much any sort of overt racism as it was as much as it was just isolation. Mm -hmm. And it was not until I met and made my first friendship with a black person at Pepperdine mm -hmm. that- Not a place which you would necessarily say is synonymous <laughs> with making right. another black friend. Right. With all due respect no, to Pepperdine. Yeah, all respect intended. Yeah, so we were at an intervarsity meeting on campus and it was all white except for this one black guy named Bobby. And so I was one of the leaders of the intervarsity chapter at that time. So I said, I'm just go up and talk to this guy. And we hit it off. And it turns out, by the way, he walked on the Pepperdine volleyball team, which, you know, they're a powerhouse yes, in the right. volleyball world. So the fact that he could walk on that team was remarkable. It's because he had a vertical jump of about 10 feet <laughs> so, or something <laughs> like that. I may be exaggerating a little bit. He also surfed. I surfed, so we started surfing together. And he was the only black guy in the water ever. We surfed together for two years. There's probably an app today to find waves. Back then, you just had to drive up and down the coast and because the waves sometimes break at this place mm -hmm. and other times they don't. I'm saying yes, like I know. Like you know surf, what I'm talking I about. I don't. Well, you're from Florida. I know, but I didn't surf. Okay. Hang 10. I know. Is that, the, Dude. Is that a real phrase? Yeah. It, it is? is? But when you say it, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds funny. <laughs> Sorry. Man, so, I'm learning so much. Oh, I know. We're just getting started. Oh, good. So whenever we'd find some waves, you know, we're walking in and paddling out and nobody looked at me because I was just another white surfer guy. Everybody was staring at Bobby. They were not stares that could be characterized as hostile. They were stares of curiosity. Like, what? Wow, look at that. There's a black guy out here. And everybody, when Bobby would take off, that's what you do to catch a wave. Oh, take off. thank you for that. I could draw you a picture if you want. Maybe later. Okay. Everybody was looking to see, well, how does this black guy do? You know, they don't care how I surf, but they wanted to see if Bobby mm -hmm. could surf well. And that happened every time we went out. And mm -hmm. at some point he, he said, you know, John, sometimes I just feel like I'm in a freak show out here. And it weighed on him and it took away some of the pleasure of that very pleasurable sport. And then as we got to know each other, I learned what it was like to be a black person in Southern California. And he, it was tough, but... I didn't care about black people until I started to care about a black person. Mm -hmm. And that was what changed my 
fairly isolated experience racially. Mm -hmm. And that began to set some things in motion that eventually changed my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you say, you've a couple times referred to the differences between Southern cross-racial friendships and dynamics with Blacks in the South compared to the West Coast. You're from South Florida, so you have a different set point. But right. how would you describe that difference? So I've been living in Georgia now for 20, over 20 years. So things have changed over that period of time. I do remember, so I've worked at two churches in Atlanta over that time period. The first church, which I won't name, the only black people on the campus were the people helping in the kitchen. And this is back in the late 1990s. And I had come from London. We had lived in London and then just moved to Atlanta. And, you know, London is very diverse racially. And I noticed right off the bat that the black people working in the kitchen seemed subdued. You know, they didn't make eye contact with me. It felt like they were uncomfortable being there. And that stood out. That was something mm -hmm. I had not experienced in Southern California mm -hmm. nor in London. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I kind of didn't really think about that too much until my brother showed up one day just to visit. And he says, so why are the only black people in your church working in the kitchen? Mm. And at that point, it was like, you know, and I, I was embarrassed and a little bit ashamed and I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So that was my first experience of black people in the South. And it just felt different than the black people I had encountered in London and in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that in Southern California, and it's still a thing I'm sorting out, you know, because I'm relatively, I've only lived here for a few years, but that there is a complexity in a different way to race relations in Southern California because it's so much more international in some senses than parts of the South. You know, our reference point, because our friendship sprung up in the South, because we worked in the South together, where race relations are much more in the black-white binary. And that isn't necessarily the case in other parts of the country like Southern California. But our hope is still that whatever racial categories are at play, that the tools that we talk about in the book will be helpful and mm -hmm. useful and enriching mm -hmm. for people. Well, I think you do give people a really ready and readily acceptable threshold of both friendship, understanding, compassion, an ability to, to grow in a natural form of communication, and then just see how the storytelling, the exchange, the depth of engagement actually unfolds or whether it really doesn't. And like any kind of friendship, it hits highs and lows, and sometimes it gets static and it stops developing further and that yeah. has its own history. But I guess if you were to be encouraging people to read your book, which I really strongly want to encourage everyone listening to think of doing, and you're trying to help people get started on this road, just give us some handles for the people that are wondering whether they're going to read the book and take it further. What kind of handles do you give people to help them figure out how to negotiate, how to get started? One of the first things we tell people is to pay attention to whom God places in front of you. And we want to say that God's involved in this process. He's not sitting watching, hoping that we are going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. He is active because this is so important to him, amongst many other things. And so that's been my story is pay attention to whom has God placed in front of you. Be alert. That's an imperative that shows up in the New Testament quite a bit. We talk about being fully present mm -hmm. and 
that's a great place to start. And I believe, inevitably, if you are open, God will place people in front of you that he wants you to engage. Mm -hmm. And so it all starts with paying attention and, um, and taking it one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we, th we think when you live that way, that's transformative. Mm -hmm. But it's so countercultural because I, you know, I am working at paying attention all the time. And you know what I see? Everybody's looking at these little black boxes in yes. their hand. And increasingly, that they have these little things in their ears. So they have separated themselves. Cocooned. Yes, mm -hmm. from whom God has placed in front of them. And, mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong, I love my iPhone or my smartphone. Did I say iPhone? I meant to say smartphone. <laughs> I love that. It's, that's how I got here today. I Ubered over here using my iPhone. So I'm not against those, but I'm saying I feel like we are withdrawing from, not only from each other, but we are withdrawing from our context. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, I think those things, the dangers, they enable you to live in your head. Mm -hmm. I think good things happen if I spend all my time there. I'm Mark Laverton. You're listening to Conversing, a production of Fuller Studio. I was in a conversation last week with some people, as I mentioned, in D.C., and one of the things that was interesting was that they were describing how porch culture still exists in in parts of D.C., some neighborhoods mm. of D.C., where you would sit on your porches and talk to whoever happens to be there, and the whole neighborhood kind of watches out for each other and for each other's children, and the social interaction happens on the stoop, not really in a technically arranged meeting at a designated time and place at a Starbucks, let's say, or whatever. But using that as an image, it feels like part of what you're saying, I think, is also to be alert to the porch moments where just really ordinary exchange happens, where it's not something fancy. I'm an introvert. I do not tend to talk to strangers. And that's uh, surprising. And you must have worked on that. I have. I've Unless you're in the backseat of an Uber car. Right. right. <laughs> See, that's a, that's a very safe zone mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. So I can be myself and do that more easily mm -hmm. from the backseat. But I started this in trying to engage with people in the grocery store. So I'm not a person who would normally talk to anybody in the grocery store line. I wouldn't talk to the clerk. I wouldn't talk to anybody. Yeah. I would just like get my food and get out of there as fast as I can. <laughs> so now when I go to the store, I actually make a deliberate point of trying to say, I want to actually try to engage at least one person mm -hmm. in the course of this. Might just be a momentary thing in between radishes and cucumbers, or it might be <laughs> standing in the line at the checkout or whatever. What I'm getting at is, I feel like all these things for me have actually just been practiced in getting outside myself, mm -hmm. just literally outside myself. Otherwise, I'm standing in that line, not necessarily with headphones or an iPhone on, but just like in my own thought bubble, my cultural bubble, inside the skin of my own color and background. What if I just made a gesture beyond that? That's not the same as a friendship at all. I'm not suggesting that it is. But sometimes friendship is made up of really small gestures. Right. <laughs> I think what you're saying there is you're kind of exercising the same muscle, yeah, right? That, right. That, that you would employ down the line to begin to do the work of cultivating longer term and more substantial right. relationships. One of the things that we talk about is we intuitively want to remain in our comfort zones. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 
it's safe there. It's comfortable. Sometimes it's kind of warm and feels mm -hmm. very cozy there. But also nothing good happens there. In mm -hmm. fact, your faith can become stagnant there because you haven't stepped outside of that comfort zone into the fertile ground mm -hmm. where, where it is that God can really begin to, mm -hmm. to work. I mean, God can work wherever God desires to sure. work. But in our experience, it's outside of the comfort zone where the real fun stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in which when you remain in your comfort zone, it becomes actually a sort of prison mm -hmm. that you can't quite break out of and that we're in a place where you might just mm -hmm. languish, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think we've made comfort into an idol of sorts in mm -hmm. our country that's become, I think comfort and safety have become inordinately important in mm -hmm. 21st century American culture. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are times when you need to feel safe and there are times when you need to feel comfortable. Sure, sure. But if you insist on that being the normative experience 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. I don't think that does good things for people, for communities, or Mm -hmm. for countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you hear these stories about very, people of color. There's a uh, story about a Muslim woman filmmaker who goes out and she's made these couple of documentaries about documenting the activity of white supremacists. And she's had some experiences where through the relationships that she's formed in making these films, people have actually left these movements. And those are amazing right. stories and stories to be, yeah, they're to, they, they are amazing yeah. stories and, and testimonies of the power of connection mm -hmm. and the power of love to really change people's minds and mm -hmm. perspectives. But I think it's important to say that that's a like, don't try this at home sort of thing. Like not everyone is going to be called to that kind of work. God right. might call. God might call some people to that kind of work, but it is a, a point of discernment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That stepping outside of your comfort mm -hmm. zone to that extent right. is a particular situation that I want to be sure to say that we aren't mm -hmm. saying that everyone ought to do that. Yeah, you know, that not feels important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can't insist that that become normal, but right. neither can you say this will... God will never call you. That's right. right. That's right. right. So one of the things that I think is underlying a lot of what you've been talking about is simply empathy, mm. a capacity to grow in empathy. So how has your friendship helped you grow in empathy? How are you more empathic because of what you've been able to experience and know through each other's eyes? Well, for me, it's just been getting myself to a place where I, as Paul says, weep with those who weep. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there's a formula to get there. I think that's just something the spirit does in you. Mm -hmm. I think the work there is to be open mm -hmm. and to listen and to pay attention to who God brings mm -hmm. and places before you. But yeah, and I, and I, we get back to Bobby again. You know, that was the first time that my heart was impacted by the pain of a black person. Right. That you could actually hear in him and in your friendship. Something yes. that you wouldn't have been able to see or hear or feel in the same way. Exactly. Right. And I was sad because he was sad. Right. Um, and that's where it all started. And, and it, I just, you know, it, yeah, that's where it all started for me. I think empathy gives some teeth to the idea of love. Mm -hmm. You know, love is a word that we kind of throw around sometimes and it's hearts and Cupid and pink and Kumbaya. red and <laughs> Yes, Sorry. and Kumbaya is not a love song. I guess it kind of is. I don't know. Maybe that's the next episode of the podcast, right? We're, that's part We're going to edit this part out, right? No, okay. this should stay Fine. in for sure. But so love becomes this squishy, amorphous 
thing that we we don't even know what it is anymore. But empathy allows us to have, it gives some teeth to it. Because like John was saying, when Paul says weep with those who weep, it's part of a, a longer piece where he's talking about the love within this community, mm -hmm. what that looks like. And so it's weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So part of being in the kinds of friendships that we are talking about, there's a thickness to them. There's a, a mutual obligation, a mutual respect, a kind of situation where if John is in pain as my brother in Christ, then I am also in pain, right? I mean, if a person were to think of their sibling, their sister or their brother, if someone were being unfair to them or treating them unjustly, and they were weeping about that, oh my gosh, it, it hits you in like the pit of your belly, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you feel that mm -hmm. with them. And we all have had that experience. And so there's a sense in which that's the kind of love and connection mm -hmm. that we know is possible through the work mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit in these friendships mm -hmm. through the power of Christ. It occurred to me as I was listening mm -hmm. to Tisha talk there that this is another illustration of how countercultural what we're talking about is. Yeah. Let me frame it this way. Busyness makes the kind of empathy that you've been speaking of almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet we are the busiest culture in the history of the planet. And if I am so busy that I don't have time to sit with somebody, mm -hmm. empathy becomes unreachable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we have to figure out a way here to slow down mm -hmm. and to, you know, I think we are busy because we are afraid. Mm -hmm. I think our culture has said, you know, keep busy all the time and you won't have to think about the things that bother you. Mm -hmm. You won't have to work on the mm -hmm. things that are kind of chewing away at you. Mm -hmm. and, and also once we say, oh, and busy becomes kind of a code for I'm important. Mm -hmm. You know, I've guilty of this. I've talked to other people that are guilty. You know, when you go, well, gee, I, I can't meet with you for three weeks. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my way of saying I'm, I am just that important and I want you to know that. And um, it's, I think busyness is, I've heard it said, raping relationships. And I think it makes the kind of empathy that we've been speaking mm -hmm. about virtually impossible. And I think it also makes the kind of friendships we would like to call people to mm -hmm. way more difficult mm -hmm. than could be otherwise. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I know when I was being asked to consider the possibility of becoming president at Fuller, I think one of my greatest anxieties about that was what it would do to friendships, not because of a change of role, but because of a diminishment of time. Mm -hmm. That I wouldn't, I wasn't sure that I knew how to maintain friendships under the duress of the kind of schedule that I figured would probably come with this job. And and it has taken a while for me to recatch my stride in finding moments and ways of being able to be sure that I'm giving adequate attention to friends that I really, really want to be in regular contact with. And it's an interesting thing to feel like at an earlier season in my life, I think I had, though busy, I still felt like I had a greater margin for that. In this season, I have a smaller margin for that. So it means I have to work at it in a different way and I have to figure out where the spaces are that can create opportunity for connection that I might not otherwise have. But it also means I need to seize the moments that I have when I do have them so that when I have them, I'm actually trying to lean into them, right? I think what this is about, as we're talking about it, 
is really this question that, our, that there's so many things about our culture, so many things, racial and non-racial things, mm -hmm. that make empathy difficult, Yeah, that make just friendship difficult, right? So the book Bowling Alone was not written about racial isolation. It was written about just personal isolation in the middle of a busy world, right? Mm -hmm. So what that does to our capacity to empathize is really big. Yeah, I think the thing that occurs to me as I listen to you, this is not rocket science we're talking about. Right. It's not like mm -hmm. you have to have a certain number of IQ points and social right. sophistication. We're talking about basic human skills that right. can be mm -hmm. utilized to combat, to disrupt racism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to point that out because it means everybody can do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Introverted, extroverted, smart, not smart, highly educated, no education. I mean, you name the categories, all of us have the capacity. All of right. us can do yeah. this. Yeah. You know, there's an educator in Canada, a woman who became very aware that in grade school that there were children who were more expressive of violence than she had mm. really felt comfortable with. And she kept trying to understand what was behind this. And she launched a study which then led to a program. The study was based on a suggestion that what was really happening was a failure to learn empathy at home. And then that carried over in school. So the ability to inflict damage on somebody else was easier because you didn't have any empathy for them, right? So she created then a curriculum to develop empathy. Now, this is the way the program goes, and I think it relates to our conversation. She developed this curriculum where I think it's at roughly the third grade level in the American system where a newborn baby is introduced to the classroom. And throughout the course of that newborn's life in that first nine months, that newborn will come in periodically throughout the whole year, and this the classroom watches them, learns them, mm observes who they are, figures out things about their personality, talks about how they have certain needs, responds to the needs. So there's a curriculum that happens in the classroom. But I've read reviews about this curriculum where she is quoted as saying, but what I realized as we started down this road was not just what happened when they were together. The real force of the curriculum, which has now been double blind tested multiple times and has had a huge statistical impact on violence in Canadian schools, is what happens when the curriculum is exercised when the children are not in the room, where the exercise is, now let's just think about the child. Let's think about what we know about the child. Mm, what time mm -hmm. of day is it? What do we think that child would be maybe thinking or feeling? Mm -hmm. What stage do we know that they're in? How is that different than where they were? What do we know about where they're going but are not yet there, et cetera, right? Yeah. Highly developing intentional skills of projected empathy where I'm, thinking about you mm -hmm. in your absence mm -hmm. and attaching to your life a meaning, a value, a worth that's greater than yeah. the fact that I have not, I'm not having any interaction with you right now, but I'm empathetically engaging you. Right. Yes. And some of the most important breakthroughs I've had in learning about racism as a result of my friendship with Tisha have happened when Tisha's not in the room. Right. I'm reflecting. Right. So reflect on, on that. Like, give give us an example of that. Well, I think just back to what do I call black people? You know, that was a brief conversation, mm -hmm. but it was in reflecting on that that I started to understand about tokenism. Mm -hmm. I, under I started to understand just reflecting on myself about fear, you know, that brief conversation, it took what, 90 seconds? Right. But it was in reflecting on that later that I learned about Tisha, I learned about this issue, I learned about myself. I would say that's almost, well, it's an essential part of a friendship. It's, a, right. it's an essential part of letting God 
use a friendship to shape mm -hmm. and form you. It's the reflection mm -hmm. you do after the conversation or after the meeting mm -hmm. is over. It seems that it guards against making generalities or trafficking in stereotypes about people as well. It gives you the handles for seeing the particularities mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. people. You know, statistics are good and helpful. They help us to see trends. They help us to understand more broadly what's going on. But we can never forget that there are actual people behind yes. every one of those numbers. Yes. And so when we talk about cultivating empathy, that's one of the things that it does. It helps me to see what is behind this particular person and what makes them tick and what keeps them going and how they've arrived here. So I don't end up kind of creating this all older white men as a monolith and, mm -hmm. saying, and making all manner of assumptions mm -hmm. about who they are and, and what they might be based mm -hmm. on what I can just see in, a, in an instant externally. So Tisha, what would you say were the things that you learned about empathy that led you to be a person who eventually ends up marrying somebody who is not African-American. Yeah. And how did that relationship affect your capacity to empathize with a person whose skin color is not yeah, your own? Yeah, that is very interesting. Cause so my husband is white and if he were sitting here, he would agree with me in saying, I think that, because we've had a lot of conversations about this, that we were actually both pretty naive about what it was to be in an interracial relationship and then marriage. We, you know, we just loved each other madly. And so we got married as, you know, people do. Um, yeah, right. And so we had to have a lot of very difficult conversations in the first year or so, particularly of our marriage, because we came from such different perspectives. I mean, my, my husband grew up, you know, largely in the Midwest and so was in a largely white existence and did not think, you know, extensively about issues of race. And so we had to have a lot of really extensive and hard conversations very early on. But at the end of the day, I loved this person deeply and truly and madly. And so that was what grounded each and every one of those conversations. That was what allowed us to believe the best about the other person. Mm -hmm. Man, did we do that perfectly all the time? No, we didn't. But we endeavored to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was, it was like the empathy, the love that we had for mm -hmm. one another was what enabled us to continue to come back. Mm -hmm. Do you know? It, it was what fueled us and kept us going as we continued to kind of navigate these difficult conversations. And so it was harder than you thought. It was, it was harder, harder than, than I thought. It yeah. was harder than I thought. Yeah. I agree with that. What would some of the sticking points have been? Just to give us an example. Yeah. Well. One of the things, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I kind of grew up in an environment that was very diverse and international. And so, and even just growing up as a black person in America, I mean, I always have been aware of race. Even though my parents are immigrants, they went to great pains, I think, to make sure that I learned always like they supplemented my education so that I learned African-American history. I know you see I use that word in that context because it gives a nuance, right? But anyway, so that I learned African-American history so that, you know, we were involved in the Urban League and all these different ways that they wanted to instill in us a knowledge of what it would mean to be Black in this context. And in contrast, my husband just hadn't had to think much about race at all, you know? And so 
there were times when for him, it seemed as though I was making things about race in ways that he couldn't even understand. Like you were making it up. Almost. Right, right. Like, or that I was sort of imposing, imposing, it, on imposing it. it on the situation. And so that would be one of, that's one example. Man, how did we navigate that? A lot of conversations, a lot of study and reading on his part as well, because he couldn't, it was unreasonable, even though we're married, for him to rely on me solely to expose him and educate him sure. about all of these issues and topics. And so he has read and studied, sort of, that's sort of his wiring as well. He's read and consumed a lot of information and learned a lot and had lots of other conversations with other people to begin to learn and understand a different and a new perspective. And I mean, I know that he did that out of his love and concern for me as his wife. I'm curious when you think about that relationship. So even when romance isn't in the picture, sure. it's still the case that we're learning often in romance. Absolutely. What things that we can apply to friendship, things that happen in friendship mm -hmm. that we apply to mm -hmm. friends, to romance and to marriage. What causes empathy to get lost, do you think? Because so often in racial conversations where it really breaks down and you end up with just anger and violence mm -hmm. and worse, it's as though there is a lack of empathy in the mm -hmm. in the context where there's no ability to actually move across your line into somebody else's space. I mean, we've talked a bit about fear. That certainly is one of the things that confuses the capacity to be empathetic. I think different narratives, you were just talking about the fact that you're, that a white narrative mm -hmm. makes it difficult to believe that the black narrative is actually true mm -hmm. because it's not the same. And the what he might've felt in some ways was an imposition, you were saying was just a declaration of what was right. It's just my story. There. Yeah, right. it's just my story. Right. It, it kind of, it really does go back to some of the conversations that we had earlier in this conversation about be staying in your comfort zone. It's a, there's a sense in which where you are and who you are and what you're around, you just assume that that's everyone's reality. And so there isn't the ability to kind of see or know or understand that there are different lived realities for people in different places and who have grown up under different circumstances and, and all the rest. So yeah, part of it is exposure, isn't it? Part of it is exposure to various stories and people's experiences to so that you can realize that your lived experience is not everyone's. I think one of the things that makes empathy difficult is rejection. Hmm. And maybe it shouldn't be that way, but it is. So when I'm talking to person A and I sense that they are rejecting me at some level, um, and there's a thousand ways that plays out, that causes me to withdraw. Well, actually the psychologists would say that that rejection tends to produce anger amongst other things. And then they furthermore, they say anger expresses itself by either attacking or running away. So it, as often as not, when I feel rejected, my next, you know, they say anger is always a secondary emotion. Mm -hmm. I become angry and my wiring is usually such that I just, I walk away. Mm -hmm. If not physically, then certainly emotionally and mm -hmm. mentally. So mm -hmm. it was key in our friendship, Tisha's and my friendship, that I didn't experience that. Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, all the thousands of ways that these conversations can go wrong I didn't experience rejection. And so now I would have had to, if I was going to be truly loving, I would have had to overcome that sense of 
rejection and the subsequent anger it produced. But I didn't need to do that, hardly ever with Tisha. And that was very important. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that even though, even when there's uh, sharp disagreements, even when, and this is such a steep hill to climb, even when you feel like the person with whom you're speaking just doesn't get it yet, there needs to be some sense of, I'm going to stay with them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to let this disagreement or this obtuseness, mm -hmm. whether you're white or black, fracture the relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the power comes in and what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If we can craft relationships, friendships, which are not fragile, relationships that stay together, even when there is an offense, even when there is a miscommunication, that is powerful. And that's what we want. That's what we feel called to. Yeah. That's what we want people mm -hmm. to join us in doing. Well, I think what you're touching on extends us into another part of the book, which we don't have time to particularly explore, but I just want to acknowledge that within the book, there's this movement that you make pretty consistently in each chapter from the personal to the systemic. So you start with this relational dynamic, but that's always set in a context where there's all kinds of operating rules that are just in systems and in patterns of culture and institutions and workplaces and everything else that ends up interacting and intersecting with your own personal friendship. And what I love about the book that I think is such a, makes it such an exceptionally rich combination is that on the one hand, it's very personal. And for people that are looking for help in understanding some of the dynamics that can help cross-racial friendships thrive, I think you really touch on that. What's also great about it is that while you do that, you also want to make sure that there's this bigger picture painted, mm -hmm. that this isn't just in a neutral zone. This all happens in a complex set of settings, which, as you say, are preloaded for all kinds of different reactions and responses and good things and really painful things that can happen. And I love the fact that that it's a both-and reality because some people, I think, have written books only about friendship but not really actually touched on the systemic pieces. Others write about systemic issues of race, but they don't really connect that to how an individual person can actually enter into a space, as you call it, as a friendship uh, that can disrupt racism one friendship at a time. That's, an, that's a powerful image of what it is that you're trying to do. Well, it really is what we've experienced. You know, what we experienced is that as we sort of cultivated this deep friendship, that together God began to call us and use us to engage further and to lead out in our church and in our community to engage in disrupting racism in the systems that are at play in the places that we have influence. Mm -hmm. And that's our hope is that people will see friendship as an amazing thing, a thing that we are calling people into, but as a place to begin, right? a place to begin, because from that friendship, we believe that God will then call you as a friend group or a set of friends, whatever it is, into engaging with God in the work that God is doing in mm -hmm. the world to mm -hmm. end racism. And we strongly believe that God is at work doing that. Right. So you can get on board or not, but it's the train is leaving the station, so right. to speak. And so often we've discovered when we were working together, once we had this friendship was thriving, we within our the little community of Buckhead Church, we were doing things to try to get this issue out mm -hmm. for people right. to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, what we discovered time and again was uh, when we started to think about systemic issues, 
we didn't start with saying, well, here's what we need to do to solve this problem. Where it almost always started was, did you even know this was a problem? Mm -hmm. It's remarkable to me how often, starting with me in process, we just didn't know or we just didn't think it was that. So I was doing a talk in a county just north of Atlanta and I decided to do some homework and discovered that within that county, the average salary that a black person pulls down is $20,000 less than the average salary that a white person pulls down. And so I talked about that in this talk that I did in the church that was in this county. And it was almost all white people on the staff. You could tell everybody was going, what, really? And then I pushed a little bit. You know, my son says, if you push too hard, you hit the off button. So I, we don't want to push too hard. But you we want, want to push some. Hard enough, right. Yeah. There's a balance there. It's a tension to manage. Mm -hmm. I said, how would you like it? You know, I don't know what you're making right now, staff person at this church. You know, if you're making, how would you like it if instead of making $75,000 an hour, you all of a sudden were making $55,000 an hour? Mm -hmm. A year, hopefully an hour would be. Did I say an hour? Any, either of we're open to that. This, this, is, a, this is a very affluent <laughs> church I've been Yeah, I've been trying to get on staff for a long time. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, just barely. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get them to empathize with what it would be like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be on the short end of that right. systemic problem. Right. So again, we discover and are discovering that a lot of times you start with helping people just to realize we have a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's tempting to want to skip to, here are some possible solutions, but we're finding if you, if you skip to that, you're not mm -hmm. going to take people with you because they don't even know there's a problem yet. Right. Well, let me again thank you both so much for this conversation and to commend your book again to all the people who are hearing this podcast. Again, the title is Black and White, Disrupting Racism, One Friendship at a Time. Thank you, John Hambrick and Tisha Hader. This is a, a great read and a very important conversation. So thank you for your part in it. Thanks for having us. We are so grateful to be yeah, here. Yeah, thanks for having us. been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio. <laughs>